Hi guys, it's Allison and welcome back to the internet work. Today we have a new Ask a Fellow episode and we're going to talk all about non-tuberculous mycobacteria. We're really happy to have Dr. Jessica Kaplik with us. Um, Jess, can you introduce yourself? Hi, like Allison said, my name is Jessica. I'm currently a fifth year respirology fellow at McMaster University. Um, I have a special interest in respiratory infections and so hope to be doing some extra training in that this next year. Great. Um, so Jess was my junior when I was a senior resident, uh, and we've made it all the way through almost all, all of our fellowship now. So um, she is now way more well-versed in many things than I ever will be. <laughs> Not a <good. laughs> um, Okay, so as we do with every Ask a Fellow, we're going to start with the case. So Jess, I'll let you take it away. So this case is actually one that I saw just this past year. It is a 72-year-old male with a history of severe COPD as well as bullous emphysema who presented with three months of worsening dyspnea as well as a dry cough. Uh, despite several courses of antibiotics and prednisone, he continued to decline and so presented to the emergency department, overall just frustrated with these persistent symptoms. Uh, in the eMERGE, they did a CTPA uh, to rule out pulmonary embolism, which showed some patchy consolidation as well as tree and bud nodules, which was suspicious for infection. Ultimately, he underwent bronchoscopy um, and BAL cultures came back positive for 2 plus AFB. Great. Um, so just dialing back a little bit, what is the significance of the cultures coming back with acid fast bacilli or AFB as you called them? So AFB or acid fast bacilli is uh, a result generally representative of a mycobacterial infection. And so mycobacteria are a particular uh, type of organism. And the most well-known of these is definitely tuberculosis or TB. Uh, cultures for mycobacteria or acid fast bacilli are commonly sent as part of a workup for respiratory infections. Um, so if a test comes back positive for AFB, the first thing you always have to consider is could this be TB? Because of course, if it is, then there's immediate public health implications as well as safety measures that need to be put in place. But having a positive AFB is not always representative of someone with tuberculosis. And so uh, the non-tuberculous mycobacteria is what we're going to talk a bit about today. Generally to confirm whether a sample is TB, as this is the first thing that we generally consider, the sample can be sent for, for something called GeneXpert, uh, which is a nucleic amp acid amplification test. Um, and this is a, essential as my, mycobacterial cultures can take up to eight weeks to speciate, and you don't want to be waiting that long to find out if someone has tuberculosis. Uh, so if TB is not isolated on the GeneXpert test, then you might consider that it could be non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and that could be the cause for their symptoms. So just to clarify, so not all samples that are positive for AFB are automatically sent for TB then, or do you have to like sort of specify that they have to go for gene expert testing? So I'm not sure if it differs by institution. Um, generally speaking, if you are concerned about TB or a person has risk factors for it, then you certainly want to send the gene expert because of the public health implications. In this case, we didn't send gene expert um, because we were more concerned about non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And so um, in this case, we didn't think there was a high suspicion for TB and didn't. Right. So if you are not so suspicious of TB, then you kind of just send for cultures and wait for it to speciate. But if you are concerned, then you want to do gene expert just because it's faster. 
Yes. So it is a quite a bit faster to do the gene expert test. It's two, about two to four hours um, versus taking about four to eight weeks. So in the case of this patient, we just sent the cultures and four weeks later, we um, ultimately got a culture that was positive for mycobacterium avium, um, which is a type of non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Right. Um, so just for everybody, what what is a non-tuberculous mycobacteria? I know you referred to it as sort of a another class of mycobacteria. Um, but what, when people say, you know, oh, this person has NTM, what really are they referring to? Yeah. So, um, NTM or non-tuberculous mycobacteria is a class of mycobacteria common referred to as like the cousins of TB. Um, it's a very large and diverse class of bacteria that encompasses both TB as well as non-tuberculous mycobacteria, as we said. These are acid-fast bacteria in that they do not show up on regular gram stains, and so they have to be specifically tested for. Um, one of their most defining features is that they have a thick hydrophobic cell wall that allows them to form biofilms that make them most, both difficult to remove as well as make them very difficult to treat. Um, While TB is definitely the most well-known, as well as known for being very virulent, it is now rare in developed areas. Uh, NTM is the exact opposite, and that is extremely common, but only rarely causes infection. Right. So if they're so common, why don't we all get NTM infections? So as I said, they have this thick hydrophobic cell wall um, that allows them to easily form sort of durable biofilms. And then because of this, these are extremely prevalent in uh, common environments like water systems and soil. Um, Because of this, we all breathe in NTM basically every day, probably in our showers or if you wash the dishes, which is not, by the way, an excuse to not do chores. Uh, Despite that, we constantly sort of are in contact with these bugs, we don't all get sick from them because they only typically cause infection when there's a predisposing factor, such as an underlying lung disease or an immunocompromising condition. Uh, So some of the most common conditions that we see associated with uh, NTM infection are bronchiectasis, COPD, and then patients that are immunocompromised by prednisone use or biologic therapy. Uh, It's also an AIDS-defining illness for patients with HIV. Okay, so are there any NTMs that we should be more worried about or more high risk then? So overall, there are over 150 mycobacteria, um, but by far the most common one we come across in North America is called mycobacteria avium complex, or you've maybe heard of MAC. Uh, NTMs are generally divided into two groups. So there's slow growers and fast growers. So slow growers or slowly growing mycobacteria, which includes MAC, tends to cause more insidious infections, usually with vague symptoms and less destructive lung disease. Whereas fast growers, which includes other mycobacteria like mycobacteria abscessus, uh, another common form of NTM, are more associated with destructive fibrocavitary lung disease and constitutional symptoms, and therefore may warrant some more aggressive treatment. You definitely don't need to know all of the names of the mycobacteria. Some of them are kind of fun, like mycobacterial zenopi and mycobacteria cookie. Um, But having an approach, including when to suspect and diagnose them, and then when to refer for treatment would definitely be a value for any internist. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that 
we are uh, not often, but we do see in some of our patients. Um, so maybe you can elaborate on what patient characteristics might make us suspect that we should be looking for NTM as, as a cause of their symptoms. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, NTMs are common bugs that uncommonly cause disease um, and we won't grow them on routine cultures. So we definitely have to have an air of suspicion for when we're going to look for them. Most people with NTMs present with vague symptoms, including sort of general respiratory symptoms, cough, sputum production, dyspnea, um, and may have constitutional symptoms like weight loss or fevers or fatigue. Identifying individuals with predisposing conditions is also helpful, including um, knowing that someone has bronchiectasis or cystic fibrosis or severe COPD. Um, that's definitely a first step in figuring out who might be higher risk for uh, having an NTM infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can like people without those predisposing conditions get NTMs? Yeah, so that's um, definitely something to make note of is that NTM infection can also occur in people without predisposing conditions. Um, And this is often referred to as Lady Windermere syndrome. Um, It was interestingly named after a character in an Oscar Wilde play um, and refers to this development of mycobacteria infection in sort of elderly Caucasian females that at the time was associated with uh, chronic cough suppression because it was unladylike to cough and poor sputum clearance because um, women tended to wear corsets, which limited um, their ability to cough. So interesting sort of fun fact. Um, so commonly the mycobacterial infections that occur um, in this Lady Windermere syndrome are associated with some certain uh, characteristics, including um, elderly females, uh, people with scoliosis, pectus, excavatum, as well as mitral valve prolapse. And that's sort of the um, phenotype that's historically been identified. Uh, the stereotype definitely is not hold true all the time today, however. Um, and NTM should definitely be on the table for any person presenting with sort of chronic nonspecific respiratory symptoms. So I think you touched on this a bit earlier in the episode, but how exactly do you diagnose NTM then? So diagnosing an NTM infection can actually be quite difficult. Um, And it's even more difficult to determine if NTM is causing a patient's symptoms. Remember that with NTM, contamination is much more common than actual infection, um, just because it's so prevalent in the environment. Because of this, clinical radiographic and microbiologic criteria all must be met in order to actually diagnose an infection. Clinical criteria includes both respiratory symptoms and radiographic signs, and then along with exclusion of other diagnoses, which is chiefly TB. Radiographically, classic findings on um, high-resolution CT include tree and bud nodules, which represent mucus plugging in the small airways, uh, fibrocavitary disease, ground glass opacities, consolidation, and bronchiectasis. Um, Usually a CT is required. However, if someone has really clear fibrocavitary disease on chest x-ray, that can be sufficient for radiographic uh, criteria. Um, And then microbiological criteria essentially just requires culturing the bug. Um, This can either be from sputum or a BAL from bronchoscopy or an actual tissue culture. And then to be sure, you need usually two positive sputums, one positive uh, BAL from a bronchoscopy or a positive tissue culture all to meet criteria. 
So basically, you need symptoms, imaging, and positive cultures, all to support NTM infection as the cause for someone's symptoms. Um, because NTM is generally pretty slowly progressive, unlike TB, there's usually sufficient time to perform all of the testing needed or get an expert consultation if the diagnosis is un unclear. Very interesting. Um, so what happened in your case then? So uh, going back to our case, um, given this patient's persistent symptoms and the respiratory decline, uh, the decision was made to start this patient on treatment. Um, and he was started on azithromycin, ethambutol, and rifampin, which are all pretty common uh, in antibiotics for NTM infections. Fortunately, this patient had few comorbidities that would limit his treatment tolerance. If he had significant liver disease or cardiac disease, then this decision may have been less straightforward, given the potential for treatment risks would have been much higher um, if he had these comorbidities. So I think it's not uncommon, especially in patients who have some sort of predisposing disease to have sort of NTM listed on their past medical history. Um, and usually they're not treated for it. So how do we determine who gets treated for NTM and whether or not treatment would actually be beneficial for them? So as I said about reaching a diagnosis, uh, determining whether or not to treat and how can be just as challenging. Um, and so it's often done under the care of an infectious disease or respirology specialist. Um, essentially, determining whether to treat an NTM uh, infection comes down to really weighing the risks and benefits. Um, we'll touch a little bit on what the therapies are, but there tends to be a high degree of adverse effects and uh, possible hepatotoxicity and, and other adverse effects related to the antibiotics that are used. And so you have to sort of identify that this patient um, could have a, a clear benefit for treatment. And so um, often this is based on how uh, clinically significant someone's disease is. So what symptoms they're having, um, how progressive the disease looks on a radiograph, as well as what it is. So fibrocavitary disease is obviously much more concerning than tree and bud nodules as far as lung destruction. And so different factors will point you in the direction of, of someone needing treatment versus being able to sort of watch their radiograph progression and their symptoms and, and determine in the future whether to treat. And so what, what sort of are, I know usually is sort of a mix of, of different regimens, but, um, what are, what are some of the antibiotics that are included in these regimens and how do you sort of create those regimens? So yeah, treatment varies a lot based on what the NTM species is, um, antimicrobial susceptibilities, um, and patient allergies. And so it typically involves three to four antibiotics in each regimen, um, which can involve a number of antibiotics from macrolides to ethambutol, rifamycins, aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones, imipenem, linezolid, all different antibiotics can be used. Uh, macrolides, however, are, are generally the sort of mainstay of treatment. Um, and these treatments are often continued for 12 months after sputum clearance, which can often mean up to 18 months or more of therapy. These medications themselves are often poorly tolerated, expensive, and carry side effects like hepatotoxicity, as I mentioned. Uh, therefore, as I said, the risks and benefits have to be very carefully weighed on a case-by-case -case basis before deciding to initiate therapy. 
another important aspect of treatment for these patients is non-pharmacologic, as we always say. Um, and so some of the important things that are included in this are, of course, good nutrition, um, exercise, as well as airway clearance, which is something we talk a lot about in respirology. Um, and so this could include use of nebulized hypertonic saline, chest physiotherapy, and then use of devices like fl flutter valves or high-frequency chest wall oscillation, uh, huff cough, or aerobic exercises. And so these are all things that we tend to talk about in a clinic for respiratory infections, um, as well in certain cases, uh, especially for medically refractory disease or very localized disease, sometimes even surgical intervention can be considered. So for patients who have NTM listed on their past medical history, previously documented, um, not treated, if they're coming in for either like a COPD exacerbation or community-acquired pneumonia, should you generally be avoiding sort of either the aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones, and macrolides um, to avoid sort of inducing resistance in case they need to be treated later? Yeah, so... Um, the different NTM species each have uh, certain drug sensitivities, and I won't go into that in more detail at this point. Um, because macrolides are often the mainstay of therapy, I have generally seen in practice that macrolide and fluoroquinolone therapy is avoided in these patients to avoid sort of partial treatment or resistance development. Um, I haven't found a lot of guidelines in terms of other antibiotics, and so I think this seems to be something that's sort of handled on an individual basis, depending on what they're presenting with and how essential that antibiotic is. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. And so in terms of follow-up then, how do you guys as respirologists follow up these patients and make sure that their infection is appropriately and sufficiently treated and that patients are um, not having any of the numerous side effects that you sort of mentioned earlier um, when it comes to treatment? Yeah, so basically all patients with NTM infection require close follow-up regardless of whether they're on treatment or not. Um, as NTM infection is a very heterogeneous sort of disease, follow-up is also very personalized to each patient. If treatment has not been initiated, follow-up is typically required to assess for disease progression or anything that might push the benefits of treatments above the risks and then indicate that it needs to be started. Interval follow-up uh, should be determined on a case-by-case -case basis based on the degree of underlying lung disease and the rate of progression generally. If treatment has been initiated, then follow-up is required to monitor for treatment tolerance as well as complications. Um, and the intervals and type of monitoring are, again, individualized based on each patient as well as what agents are being used. An important aspect of follow-up in these patients is repeating sputum um, AFB testing as this determines treatment duration. Uh, testing is usually repeated at three, six, and 12 months to begin with. Um, and we're generally looking for patients to clear their cultures by 12 months if therapy is adequate. Uh, antibiotics are then continued for another 12 months after the time point that their cultures become clear. And so it's obviously a very long time to be on antibiotics. Uh, these patients are usually followed for an extended period of time, even after they complete treatment, both because um, treatment is very long in duration, but there's also a very high risk of recurrence. 
Amazing. Um, thank you so much for taking us through this difficult topic. I'm sure our listeners, uh, many of them have come across NTMs and either aren't really sure what they are, or even if they need to be treated. So this is definitely um, very helpful. Um, so as always, we like to end our Ask a Fellows with a summary of sort of five main points uh, that you want us to take from this episode and from your uh, talk here on NTMs. Sure. So of course, this is a very complicated topic. I think this is still even something that we as respirology fellows find very complicated to address when it comes across in our patients. So one, the most important is that NTM are common bugs that uncommonly cause disease, unlike tuberculosis. Uh, so two, they should be considered in patients with lung disease or immunocompromised states that are presenting with insidious or sort of subacute respiratory or constitutional symptoms. But of course, they are on the differential for anyone presenting with chronic respiratory complaints. Three, the diagnosis requires both clinical or radiographic as well as microbiological evidence to determine someone has infection and not just contamination of uh, their cultures. And four, um, deciding whether to treat is challenging and requires a careful weighing of both the risks and the benefits given the long duration of antibiotics and the associated possible toxicities. And five, treatment involves prolonged courses of multiple antibiotics, as I said, and this is tailored to each individual patient based on their NTM species, the susceptibilities, the patient comorbidities, and therefore, it's always helpful to have a specialist involved in these patients' care. Call your friendly respirologist or infectious disease colleague who's on call, me aka day. you. Hopefully, call me. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Ask a Fellow on non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. Special thanks to Dr. Jessica Kaepernick, Respirology Fellow at McMaster University, uh, for being our fellow in this episode. The internet work was created by Allison Lai and is developed and executively produced by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. Theme song by Lakshman Fizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.